joining us here on the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela, and on this episode, we will be continuing our look at the Reformed Doctrines of Grace, better known as the Doctrines of Calvinism. But before we do that, I would like to remind you that we would love for you to partner with the show by becoming a patron. If you visit the Podbean page, just click on the Become a Donor uh, and sign up to donate with the show. Your contributions will help purchase some new equipment to make the quality of these episodes so much better for you. In addition to helping this show, why don't you also head on over to the Christus Victor Network, which is www.christusvictornetwork.com, and check out some of the other shows that, that are listed in that network. Right now it's small, but keep coming back and checking it out because we're looking to add some new podcasts soon, so you might see some new content uh, rolling out uh, shortly. Okay, with those small orders of business out of the way, let's dive into this episode where we look at the second doctrine of Calvinism, also called unconditional election. Enjoy the show. does not mean without reason, but rather without any condition found in the object itself. That is, there's nothing meritorious about it. Yet this does not mean that the chooser does not have their reasons, no matter how unknowable. In other words, unconditional does not necessarily mean arbitrary. As we dive into this doctrine of unconditional election, where, uh, as the cliche goes, angels fear to tread, uh, a good word of warning comes to us from John Calvin uh, from chapter 21 of the Institutes, where he writes, quote, The discussion of predestination, a subject of itself rather intricate, is made very perplexed and therefore dangerous by human curiosity, which no barriers can restrain from wandering into the forbidden labyrinths and from soaring beyond its sphere, as if determined to leave none of the divine secrets unscrutinized or unexplored. First, then, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they penetrate into the inmost recesses of divine wisdom, where the careless and confident intruder will obtain no satisfaction to his curiosity. For we know that when we have exceeded the limits of the word, we shall get into a devious and irksome course in which errors, slips, and falls will be inevitable." Let us then, in the first place, bear in mind that to desire any more knowledge of predestination than that which is unfolded in the word of God indicates a great folly as to wish to walk through impassable roads or to see in the dark. Nor let us be ashamed to be ignorant of some things relative to a subject in which there is a kind of learned ignorance. End quote. We're also attempting to speak of Calvinism from an unbiased platform, with an open exchange of ideas, but also to allow first and foremost the Bible, Scripture, to speak for itself, and secondly the historic creeds and confessions to inform our understanding of the working of God in our salvation. We discussed last week our total depravity before God and in our sin, both in Adam and in our own flesh, and our spiritual inability by which we are unable to bring out our own salvation, just plagiarism, or even to will the conditions in which salvation can come, which is semi-plagiarism. 
Due to the controversial nature of this doctrine and the innumerable rabbit trails that can be taken into predestination, sovereignty, human freedom and liberty of the will, reprobation, God's foreknowledge, and so many other areas, this week we're going to primarily look at the scriptures in a biblical theological approach and not so much in a systematic theological approach, with the exception of some needed definitions at the beginning. At the end of this, uh, at the end of this section, there are going to be several creedal and confessional statements that we'll go through, as well as some references for further study. Just remember, with a topic like this, this episode is going to be far from exhaustive. I would also like to note that, again, what we're doing here is asking, what does the Bible teach? What does it say? We're not arguing if it's true or false. We're just assuming, for the sake of argument, that, that it's important what the Scripture says. Right? So for my atheistic listeners, again, you're just listening to find out what do Calvinists think the Scripture teaches. Right? There's so much misunderstanding about what Calvinism is compared to differences like hyper-Calvinism, uh, differences between determinism and a kind of mechanical hard determinism from pre-will and, and compatibilism. And, and there's so many different areas that we can go to in philosophically. But the question is, what does the Bible teach? It might be the case if you're a skeptic or, or, or if you uh, don't hold to something like inerrancy or authority of the scriptures, you might say the Bible teaches something and it's just wrong. We're not going to get into those questions today. We're going to simply ask the question, what does the Bible teach about election? We're not going to go into a fully orbed context or concept of predetermination. We're just going to talk about what the Bible teaches about unconditional election. So what are uh, some of the things that people have said about this doctrine who support it? Uh, Louis Burkhoff in his book, uh, Systematic Theology on page 114 says, quote, The eternal act of God whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men to be recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. More briefly, it may be said to be God, uh, God's eternal purpose to save some of the human race in and by Jesus Christ. End quote. Uh, Lorraine Boatner, in his Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, writes on page 83, quote, The existence of an eternal divine decree which antecedently to any difference or desert in men themselves separates the human race into two portions and ordains one to everlasting life, and the other to everlasting death, end quote. There he's talking about election and reprobation. Reprobation is the flip side of election, which we are going to talk about uh, to a degree as well in this episode. Uh, next, I'm going to get read a rather long section. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, sections 3 through 7. Quote, by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined to everlasting life, and others are foreordained to everlasting death. These angels and men thus predestined and foreordained are particularly and unchangeably designed, and their number is so certain and definite that it cannot be either increased or decreased. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God, before the foundations of the world, was laid according to his eternal and immutable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his mere grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance in either of them, or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto, and all to the praise of his glorious grace." As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he by eternal and most free purpose of his will foreordained all the means thereunto, whereby they are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ effectually called, justified, adopted, or sanctified and saved, but the elect only. 
the rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. End quote. All right, so what are some of the passages that are going to relate to this? So first we'll look at election, and then we're going to look at reprobation. So election is the side where uh, God chooses those uh, which he uh, foreknows uh, to be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Reprobation, uh, also um, the, the flip side, uh, where those uh, who are not chosen to be saved are uh, foreordained to everlasting death. All right, this is going to be one of those times where I'm going to be flipping through so many different passages. Uh, I'm going to try to edit out some of the longer pauses, some of the pl page flipping, some of the clicking. Uh, but if it seems a little bit choppy, uh, I apologize for that. I'm going to read. Uh, this is going to be quite a few, quite a few verses that we're going to go through uh, with a brief commentary uh, for on each one as we go through, just to see that these these verses are not, you know, I'm not pulling this um, this this kind of craziness out of you know one doctrine or something. This is this is an established pattern uh, of doctrine that we are talking about. So Jeremiah 1.5 says, starting in verse 4, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, quote, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. End quote. Here, this passage is talking about it's Jeremiah's call to be a prophet. And God is saying, before Jeremiah was even in his mother's womb, God knew him. And the interesting thing here is before he was born, God consecrated him. God set him apart. God elected him. God chose him to be his prophet to the nations. Before Jeremiah had done anything good or bad or exercised faith or not exercised faith, God chose him to be a prophet, to be a voice, to be a believer. It wasn't on Jeremiah. God chose him. Uh, we're going to look also now at Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 14. Matthew 22, 14, at the end of the parable concerning uh, the marriage feast, where uh, the king came out to the feast, saw a guest who was not uh, in his wedding clothes, in uh, starting verse 13, then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Here, uh, the, the invite is made to all of the guests, uh, but the king chooses uh, the ones. Now, this obviously has uh, major implications uh, for Israel uh, and for the breaking of the bonds uh, going out to the nations. Uh, so the call goes out to the nations, but uh, explicitly says that few are chosen. Not that few choose, but that few are chosen. Uh, the next one is going to be John 6, 65. John 6, 65. This is uh, some of Jesus' words to his disciples. <clears throat> Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. Uh, some of his disciples hear what he says about uh, uh, abiding in God, uh, eating his flesh, talking about communion, and they have a difficulty. So Jesus, uh, it says in verse 61, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. Right? Uh, here, here Jesus is saying there, there he, he says a hard thing, and he says, Look, I know some of you don't believe, some of you do believe, and, and I and I knew that it was that way. In fact, this is the reason that he said it to, to them the way that he has, because the only ones who would be believe are the ones that have been granted belief by the Father. 
picking up uh, later on in John, we're going to go through a couple of verses in John because John is very big on this. John 13, 18. Picking up at 16, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who is sent. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives me, whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Jesus is basically saying, look, he he allowed Judas, even though he knew that he would betray him to fulfill the scriptures. But he says... Specifically, I know the ones that I have chosen. I know the ones that I picked from beforehand and the one who is the imposter that I didn't choose beforehand, that I didn't grant faith to beforehand. John 15, 16. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he may give you. Jesus, again, saying he chose the disciples. He chose them. They didn't choose him. He chose them. John 17, 9. John 17, 9 says, I ask of their belief. I do not ask on behalf of the world but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus in his high priestly prayer is praying specifically for the ones that he says that the Father has given to him. Right? They, they were chosen by God to give as disciples, to give as believers. And he's not just talking about his current disciples. He's talking about all future believers. Let's, go, let's move further on. Let's go to Acts here we're going to look at Acts 13. Acts 13, 48. This is Paul turning his message to the Gentiles, starting in 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed this is really important because when we when we go through this especially when we get to limited atonement there's there's going to come this question there are these passages where it talks about how jesus died for all right we're going to see it in a second when we get to romans where jesus died for all the 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 atonement was for all uh, all people and, and the Arminian is going to say, well, that, that means all every single uh, distinct human being. The Calvinist is going to say, no, no, no. What we see throughout the entire New Testament is that the good news is that God's proclamation is no longer for Israel, but it's for everyone, uh, for, for all of the tribes, all the nations, all the tongues, all of the nations. It's going out to all nations. <clears throat> so that some might believe. That's the good news. That's going out to the ends of the earth, notice he says, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's going out everywhere. But he says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Right? They don't believe and then get appointed to eternal life. They're appointed to eternal life. And those ones who had been appointed are the ones who believe. Let's keep going. We'll go to Romans 5. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, this is an important one uh, because this is saying that, that Christ died for us. Christ died as our atonement. Christ died as our propitiation, as our reconciliation, as our scapegoat. 
while we were still sinners, while we were still at enmity with God. If we study what Paul is talking about, when he talks about us being sinners, we are under, as sinners, we'll see in Ephesians, as sinners, we are under the wrath of God. We are under the curse. We are living under the old sinful nature. We are living under the old sinful self. Here he's saying that while we were still sinners, while we were still natural men, while we were still uh, under control and bondage to sin and death and our wills were perverse, that's when Christ died for us. And he's talking about justification. He keeps going on. He goes on in this area talking about those who are saved. He says in verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. He's not talking about all humanity. Christ, he's not saying that while all were sinners, Christ died for all of us. The us is referring to those who he considers to have uh, received justification. Romans 8. This is often called the golden chain. Uh, the golden chain as we work our way through these uh, verses, um, verses 28 to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the first fruits among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? What, is, what, is that, what does that golden chain mean? It means that anyone that's in the first camp, the first category, the first link of the chain is carried through in the next one. Right? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Right? Those whom he foreknew. Well, the ones that he foreknew, he, 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 he predestined to become conformed to the image uh, of his son. Well, those that he predestined, he also called. And those that he called, he justified. And those that he justified, he glorified. Right? There's, there, there's, no, there's no sense that this is calling to larger, oh, you know, he called a whole group, but only the ones who responded and only those ones whom he responded, he justified. No, it's those he called, he justified. Who are the ones that he called? Those that he predestined. Right? There, there's, there's, there's no, there's no uh, condition of faith anywhere in here. Uh, Romans 9, 10 through 23. Sorry, this is going to be a little bit longer of a read, but it's going to be important to read through. Uh, quote, <clears throat> uh, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Right. Uh, we'll keep going, but just, but just pay attention there that it's saying that it's, that it's a, so the purpose of his choice that would stand. Not our choice, his choice. Continuing on in verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice in God, is there? May it never be, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Right here, we have to remember, all are deserving of death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God doesn't have to show mercy. Mercy is undeserved favor. That's the whole point. And why does it do it? So that God's God's choice will stand. Right? It specifically says uh, that it does not depend on the man who wills. It doesn't depend on our choice. It doesn't depend on our faith. It depends on God. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man? Who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Right, A lot going on in there, but notice, uh, first and foremost, at the very end, while it's kind of hot on my mind, uh, the, the good news is that it's not just among the Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles. So when you get all the world, right, it's talking about all kinds of people, all tribes, all tongues, all nations. It's not talking about every single discrete human person. Right? But if we look through the, those, and we'll see as we, as we go through the objections, those who object to unconditional election and say that it's, well, it's based, on, it's based on exercising faith, or look how unfair, you know, if it's not, look how unfair it is. They're taking the exact side that Paul protests, right? As a Christian, right, for my atheist listeners, this won't really matter to you, but as a Christian, you don't really want to be on the side that Paul is saying, no, 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 you're wrong explicitly, right? You don't want to be on the side that says, well, then it's not fair because who can resist God's will? Because Paul is saying, uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who resists his will? And he rebukes them saying, on the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? Paul explicitly addresses what is a pretty common Arminian objection. Right? Because God is the one uh, who shows mercy on the ones whom he wants to show mercy and hardens the ones that he chooses to harden. The next one, Romans 11.5. Romans 11.5 says, In the same way then there was also uh, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious, gracious choice. Here he's saying that God has preserved for himself a remnant. Not, not because the people have exercised faith, not because people chose God, but because God chose a remnant. Next, we'll look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 28 to 29 says, uh, starting actually up, uh, let's start in 26. It's one long uh, sentence. For consider your calling, brethren. Remember, who, who are those who are called? The ones who are called are those whom he foreknew and he predestined, right? So can, every time Paul is talking about your calling, consider your calling, right? He's pointing to election. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despise, uh, and the despise God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus." who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice it says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not your doing, not your exercise of faith, not your belief. It's because God called you. It's because God uh, chose you in Jesus Christ by his doing is the righteousness and the sanctification and the redemption. So that when you boast, all you can boast of is that God is great. There's nothing about yourself that merits salvation. There's no nothing you did to add to it. You didn't, you're not even responsible for the faith that is the means of grace. All right, Ephesians, we'll keep going through Paul. <clears throat> We're almost done with election, then we'll get to reprobation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespass, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heavens and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. How many times in there was it God that was acting? That was by his will? How many times over and over and over again we were predestined? in Christ before the foundations of the world. Not not because God looked down the corridor of time and saw our future faith. No, God created us as the elect. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, and then 8 through 9, two, uh, uh, 4 through 5, Ephesians 4 through 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespass and our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? We were dead in our trespasses and we were made alive. That made is passive. Right? Notice that we are passive. We were made. We're the lump of clay. We're not, we're not asking to be made this way. And then verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them over and over and over again it's we are predestined we were prepared in advance we were prepared beforehand right and the final one first peter 2 9 first peter chapter 2 verse 9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Right? Some people some people misunderstand that this this is actually a verse that was ascribed to Israel, God's chosen people. Right? The the analog is the church. Right? Those who are redeemed in Jesus Christ. He's saying who 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 is the chosen people? Who is the holy nation? Who is the people for God's own possession? The church is in the same way that Israel was called out of the nations. Israel was chosen by God. Israel didn't choose God. Israel didn't act in faith and therefore God chose him. God chose Israel, entered into covenant with them, and then they responded with faith. And here that's applied to the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We are chosen like Israel was chosen. We are chosen and so we respond in faith. Faith isn't the, the, the basis for our calling. Now, by the way, I should add, this is something that's commonly misunderstood. This is something that's commonly misunderstood by by unbelievers, and they're going to say, "Well, look, uh, that that look how elitist that is. Don't, how how self righteous it is. Does, does, you know, look how you think you're better. You think you're you know you're God's chosen people. You're all that. Did did you miss the unconditional aspect? 
did did you miss that we are completely fallen in sin did you, did you miss that we're dead in our sins and trespasses? Did you miss that we before we before we exercised faith that we were objects of wrath? Did you miss all? I mean, there there did did you miss the fact that that we don't know who the elect are? That we're to treat everyone with love and compassion. Did did you? So the, it, it's not a sense of self righteousness. It's not. I'm not saying, "Ooh, look how great I am." In fact, the only reason that I'm redeemed in Jesus Christ is because of the glory and the grace of God. It has nothing to do with me. In fact, if I wasn't so sinful, if I wasn't dead in my sin, I wouldn't need grace. The fact that I needed grace for salvation, there, there's nothing for me to be self righteous about. I'm not great. I'm not fantastic. I, I'm not worthy of, of the election. I'm not worthy of the calling. I'm not worthy of my salvation. But Christ is. And that's the good news. Right? That, that's election. But what about the other side of the coin? This has been called the harder doctrine. Right? This is the doctrine of reprobation. This is often even considered a harder doctrine than the doctrine of hell. Uh, this doctrine can be comprised of what's called preterition, condemnation, or both. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, for, first one, uh, we're going we're gonna to again go in kind of canonical order. Proverbs 16. We're going to look at Proverbs 16, verse 4. Proverbs 16, verse 4 said, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Right? The God, the God has made everything. Even the wicked for the day of evil. God, God made the wicked. Right? It doesn't mean that God's responsible. It doesn't mean that God's a creator of sin. It doesn't mean that God is the creator of evil. God, he's, he's, not, he's not the author of evil. He doesn't commit evil. We, we are fully responsible for our own actions. We are fully responsible for our own sin, but God created us. The elect and the unelect, all the same. Let's then look at Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. This is actually quoted six times in the New Testament. 9 through 10. Uh, I'll pick up in, in verse 8. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed might be a hard thing for some of us. Again, this is, this is often called a harder doctrine than the doctrine of hell. Right? But there's a sense in which God creates the reprobate and leaves them in their reprobation actively. Right? Some, some people talk about passing over. Uh, that, that, that God uh, preordains the elect of salvation, but he just, he just passes over the reprobate. That is, he doesn't choose them, but he doesn't actively choose them to hell. Right? This seems pretty active to me. Right? He's not just passing over. He's saying, render the hearts of this people insensitive. Make their ears dull. Make their eyes dim. Make sure they don't understand. Right? That's active. Now, whatever ethical constraints and concerns you might have with this, the Bible is telling us that it's active. What about Romans 9? Again, we, re we read it before. I won't, I won't read the passage again. But Romans 9, talking about Pharaoh, talking about Jacob, talking about Esau. <clears throat> and what does it tell us? It tells us that, that God intentionally hardened Pharaoh. Why? For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that, you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. We talked about this before. I've asked this question many times. Why do some people think that, that when we talk about this, this um, best possible world type of theology, the best possible world means the most people saved? That's not a biblical view. The biblical view is that uh, what, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Right? What's the purpose of creation? To bring God glory. How do we bring God glory 
uh, for his justice if he never executes it? How do we bring God glory for his holiness if we don't know what unrighteousness is, what unholiness is, what wickedness is? Right? What brings God the most glory? Well, bringing God the most glory might be judgment. Right? In fact, he says, he says specifically, uh, or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from some the lump of one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Right? There's, there's vessels prepared beforehand for grace, and there's vessels prepared beforehand for wrath, and both are to the glory of God. 11.7, what then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it and the rest were hardened passive not the rest hardened themselves the rest were hardened they received a hardening first peter 2 8 this is the passage just before uh, the passage we read about being a chosen nation, royal priesthood, uh, right before this, it says, uh, the, uh, uh, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. They were designated, they were designed, they were predestined to stumble, to be disobedient to the word, and to the doom, to their judgment, to their destruction. They were appointed. It's a hard doctrine. Doesn't mean we have to like it. But that's what it teaches. What about Jude? Jude verse 4. Jude verse 4 says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Who are these people? He's talking about people who are coming in and they're saying, Look at, look at all this free grace. Look at, look at these Christians. They say, look, if, if you've sinned, there's grace. That's great news. Why is that great news? Not, not in the same way that a Christian would say that's great news. That's great news because we can be licentious. We can do whatever we want. We can have orgies and there's forgiveness. Well, that type of attitude, that type of licentiousness, it doesn't take the forgiveness seriously. It doesn't take the grace seriously. It doesn't take the death of the Savior seriously. Right? That's why there's no get-out-of-jail-free card. You can't, you can't use it like this. But what does he say about these people? These are the ones who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. These are the ones that were predestined, predestined to be condemned. All right, another verse, last one on reprobation. Revelation 13.8. Revelation 13, 8, uh, this is talking about the beast from the sea. Uh, I know there's, there's quite a bit of uh, symbolism going in here. Um, but, but, you know, if even through all the symbolism, we can get what it says. It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has ear, let him hear. There are those who before the foundations of the world had their name written in the book of life. That's election. But there are these others. There are the other ones who did not have their name written in the book of life. That's everybody else. That's the reprobate. Right? Election and reprobation are both clearly taught in the scriptures. All right. Now that we've gone through those, what else? What what else is there to say? Well, we can have some we can have some basic debates, right? What are what are some of the objections that people give to these? Well, 
What about those verses like 1 Timothy 2.4 and 2 Peter that say that God desires that all would be saved? Right? There, there are these passages that say that, that God desires that all would be saved. Well, the common Reformed answer to this question is to remind us that God has a secret and revealed will. Right? Deuteronomy 29.29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord. So while God commands humanity what is in line with the moral nature of his of himself of God righteousness right for example is not just goodness right but the action that brings God the most glory so he commands all humanity to perfection this is his revealed will right God's nature it's not like he's it's not like he's sitting around saying man I wish I wish people would sin right sinning is so great right he wishes that people wouldn't sin. That, that's his desire, that no one would be sinned. His desire is that all would be saved. Right? Yet God also has a secret will in which he works all things together for his purposes. And this includes the eternal destinies of all people. We can read this in Genesis 50.20 and in James 4.15. We can see the perfect expression of the contrast of the two wills in Jesus' statement in Matthew 11, 25 to 26, when, he's, when he prays, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to babes. Yea, Father, for such was your gracious will. End quote. See, you see that the gospel, even though God desires that all to believe and not perish, is still revealed to some and actively hidden by God from others. Right? Jesus says it specifically. He says he's, he's glad that, 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 that God has revealed certain things to, to, to his children by his gracious will. Right? But he's hidden them from the wise and the understanding. By the, by the way, uh, just as an apologetical note, this isn't referring to like people who use reason and rationality. This isn't one of those like, you know, uh, you don't, you just need faith. You don't need reason types of things. This was a colloquial, the wise and the understanding is a colloquial way of saying like the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the, 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 the super spiritual people, right? These are the same people who are the religious hypocrites, right? The people who are religiously oppressing the people. The weak, the oppressed, the outcast, right? This is this is his way of saying he's glad that God the Father ha has not revealed the gospel to people who would distort it and twist it and hide it from the people, but that it's been revealed to the innocent, to the meek, to the mild, right? And why? For such is your gracious will, right? For such brings about the maximal amount of glory to God. For, for more on this, I recommend uh, John Piper's book, The Justification of God, uh, and um, the chapter called Are There Two Wills of God in a book called Still Sovereign, which is educated, ed, um, ed, ed, uh, edited by Schreiner and Ware. Uh, what, well, what about another objection? Right? For, for one of the objections is for, for God to choose some and not to choose others, or to choose some for salvation and to choose the others for, for reprobation, it's just unfair. Well, this assumes that sinful humans have some right and claim on salvation, that God would only be unjust if this were the case. If we understand total depravity correctly, then we also understand that no human has a right to salvation or is owed any type of grace from the Lord. This is why it's called grace, right? Unmerited favor. We must be honest and say that God would have been entirely just to leave all humanity in its sin and condemn the whole race to hell. He didn't have to save anyone. Did the dry bones in Ezekiel 37 deserve to be raised? No. Did Lazarus deserve to be raised in John 12? No. The fact that God saves any should be a testimony to his graciousness and his glory. Remember also that God did not provide salvation for any of the angels who fell. He left them all to the eternal condemnation as was absolutely just in doing so. Would we say that God is unjust in not redeeming the demons? Finally, as I pointed out before, this is the same objection that Paul receives in Romans 9 when he presents this same fact. 
Should we ignore that Paul taught this doctrine in the same manner as the Reformed faith, as the Calvinists, and he received this exact same objection? Paul's answer, in essence, is, who are you, an unjust man, to question an absolutely just God? We therefore confuse how we are to act in human affairs in which we treat all people with equity and equally and God's affairs with people in which he has no obligation to treat humans in any other way than he so chooses because we don't deserve anything else. Number three, God chooses based on his prescient grace. Right, his foreknowledge. This is, the, this is a, a little bit more theological Arminian uh, response. Right, Spurgeon once said that if God had not unconditionally elected him from before the foundations of the world, he never would have. <laughs> uh, basically he's saying, look, if, if God had to look down the corridors of time to see my faith, to then elect me from before the foundations of the world, he never would have because if it wasn't for God's election, there would not be faith to foresee Right? Our understanding of total depravity will again help us to dismiss this objection. If we know that we're dead in our sins and spiritually unable to cause our own salvation, then we would know that there is no future faith to see. If God had not elected me, had not regenerated me, I would never have had a faith in the future to be seen. This would also cause a redundancy. It, it, it's like placing a bet after a winning game, right? I bet on the one who's already won. Uh, what's the point in electing those who have already chosen for themselves? Those who claim that because foreknowledge precedes predestination of Romans 8.39 set up a total straw man. For who else could God predestine but those whom he foreknew? The question is, what does God foreknow, right? Does God foreknow our future faith or does God foreknow us? We know that when God's foreknowledge is spoken of in the connection with salvation, it is always foreknowledge of the person and not of the facts about the person. When Paul says, quote, those whom he foreknew, end quote, he could have easily meant, quote, those whom he long ago thought of in a saving relationship to himself, end quote. If you look at, if you remind ourselves of Jeremiah 1.5, in which God's foreknowledge of Jeremiah was the loving and elective act of calling Jeremiah to be a prophet. Right, he's not saying that I foreknew that Jeremiah would exercise faith. Right? He's saying, I'm foreknowing and I'm choosing in the elective sense him to be a prophet. Right? This would also transform faith, which is shown in Ephesians 2, 8-9 as a gift, into something that is meritorious within ourselves. I know they hate that. I know they may not say that. And they say, no, 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 it's still of grace. Right? The, the gift is still offered in grace. The faith is just what we use to accept it. Right? It's not meritorious. I'm sorry. If receiving grace is only possible by faith, then faith is the merit. Faith, faith is what you use to get the grace. Right? Not just the means, but it's what makes you deserve it, makes you get it. Right? If, God, if God foreknew that you would exercise faith and therefore he elected you, then it's not unconditional. It's conditioned on the, those who would exercise faith. Once we redefine faith that way, once we do this, we now deny the gospel that we are saved by grace alone. Faith is the means, but under Arminianism, faith is the condition. Right? Faith, God, God ordains those who would have faith. Faith is the condition by which God chooses. Right? That's a merit. That's an act. Right? Only under Calvinism, where it says, even our faith is a gift of God. I, my faith is a merit. There's no for, faith to foresee because my faith is an act of my will after God has regenerated me. Right? And that's the gospel that we've been saved by grace alone. How about another objection? <clears throat> the objection that God's election and reprobation prevents human free will. Right? This came up in the, in the discussion with Molinism. 
that I had with Rob Johnson. But we have to, again, remember that our human will is enslaved to sin by the fall. Remember, we are, as, as, as Augustine said, we are non posse, non picare prior to regeneration. We are not able to not sin. Right? We can do some good things, but we're not able to not sin. We will all sin. Right? If this is the case, if total depravity is the setting that we find ourselves in, then we're placing our human will above the sovereignty of God. It should give us pause when we begin to diminish an attribute of God in order to bolster a faculty of man. We also have to remember that the biblical concept of the human will is that it is bound to our nature. If we're dead in our sins, then our will is bound to that nature and thus we willingly reject Christ, even though God has allowed us to remain in our sin. Right? The reprobate though predestined by God, willingly denies the Lord, right? You can see this in John 8, 43 to 44 and Acts 2, 23, right? We, we are willfully involved. We choose it, but we're also predestined. While the believer who has been regenerated by God into a new creation has a will that is bound to the new creation, and so the faith that is now free to believe with is both a gift from God by regeneration, but is also freely chosen with the regenerated will. We see this in Romans 8, 5 through 8. Therefore, faith is a prerequisite to salvation, but not of election. Faith is the means by which our salvation is applied to us, but it's not a condition of God's election, God's choosing, God's foreordination, God's foreknowing us before the foundation of the world in Jesus Christ. Thus, both choices, to believe or not to believe, are both totally determined by the will of God before all of eternity, while simultaneously made in a completely free manner. We talked about the, 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 the Russian nesting dolls a couple times. Here we're going to really start seeing it. So now that we are totally depraved, we are, we are, the only way then that we can be brought in a relationship with, with, with God through Christ is by God choosing us. We can't choose him. We're totally depraved. We can't, we, can't, uh, we can't affect our own salvation. Our natures are dead. Our will is bound to that deadness. And so the scripture says that for us to be brought into relationship with God, the first act is for God to choose us. It's entirely an act of God. This is going to help our assurance of faith. We're going to see as we go throughout the entire thing, why can, I have assurance of, why can I have assurance of my salvation? Because it's entirely of God and God keeps his word. Because God is immutable. Because God keeps his word. If it was conditioned on me, right? if it was conditioned on, on my faith, my faith wax and wanes. I have good days of faith. I have bad days of faith. I have good days of faith. I have days of doubt. Right? How can I have assurance of faith if my faith is the requisite? If my faith is the condition? Right? Maybe, maybe I have bad faith. Maybe I have weak faith. Right? But, it, but I can have assurance because first and foremost, God has said that it's of his prerogative. It's of his choice. He freely chose me before the foundations of the world. We'll see how this assurance builds and builds and builds as we go. But hopefully you can see that in the scriptures, the concept of election and the concept of reprobation are found. That's what's taught. John Calvin writes in the Institutes, book number three, chapter 27, there can be no election without its opposite reprobation. R.C. Sproul wrote in a study note of the Reformation Study Bible, he wrote, quote, like every truth about God, the doctrine of election involves mystery, and it sometimes stirs controversy, but in scripture, it is a pastoral doctrine, helping Christians to see how great is the grace that saves them and moving them to respond with humility, confidence, and praise. We do know that we believe now only because we were chosen, and we know that as believers, we can rely on God to finish the work he has begun. That's assurance. God said that he is the one that started the good work and that he will be the one that finishes it. Louis Burkhoff again in Systematic Theology, page 114, says, quote, As such, it is a source of rich comfort for all believers. 
Their final salvation does not depend on their uncertain obedience, but has its guarantee in the unchangeable purpose of God. End quote. Now, for those who want to say, well, this is just Calvinism. Right? This, this is just uh, something that Calvin invented. You know, you people are just following after a man. It's not after the Bible, all this kind of stuff. Hopefully I've shown that it's, that it's actually in the Bible. But here, here this, this is some of the canons from the, the Council of Orange in 529 uh, CE. Canon 3. If anyone says that the grace of God can be conferred as a result of human prayer, but that it is not grace itself which makes us pray to God, he contradicts the prophet Isaiah or the apostle who says the same thing, quote, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Romans 10.20, quoting Isaiah 65.1. Canon 4. If anyone maintains that God awaits our will to be cleansed from sin, but does not confess that even our will to be cleansed comes to us through the infusion and working of the Holy Spirit, he resists the Holy Spirit himself, who says through Solomon, quote, The will is prepared by the Lord. Proverbs 8.35, and the salutary word of the apostle, quote, for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. Canon number five, if anyone says that not only the increase of faith, but also its beginning and the very desire for faith by which we believe in him who justifies the ungodly and comes to the regeneration of the holy baptism. If anyone says that this belongs to us by nature and not by gift of grace, that is by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, amending our will and turning it from unbelief to faith and from godlessness to godliness, it is proof that he is opposed to the teaching of the apostles. For blessed Paul says, quote, And I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 And again, quote, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 For those who state that the faith by which we believe in God natural make all who are separated from the church of Christ by definition some measure believers. Canon 6. If anyone says that God has mercy upon us apart from his grace, we believe, will, desire, strive, labor, pray, watch, study, seek, ask, or knock, but does not confess that it is by the infusion and inspiration of the Holy Spirit within us that we have the faith, the will, or the strength to do all these things as we ought, or if any makes the or if, or if anyone makes the assistance of grace depend on the humility or the obedience of man, and does not agree that it is a gift of grace itself that we are obedient and humble, he contradicts the apostle who says, quote, what have you that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4, 4, 7, and quote, by the grace of God, I am what I am. 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, and on and on. You can read more of this, Canon 7, Canon 8, and so forth. Right? This, is, this, is, this is not something new at the Reformation with the Calvinists. Right? What about the can Council of the Canon of Dort? Uh, the Canons of Dort, again, uh, in the first main point of doctrine, Article 6, God's eternal decision, quote, says, quote, The fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and that others do not stems from his eternal decision. For all his works are known to God from eternity, Acts 15, 18, and Ephesians 1, 11. In accordance with the decision, he gracious, graciously softens the heart, however hard, of his chosen ones and inclines them to believe. But by his just just judgment, he leaves in their wickedness and hardens the heart of those who have not been chosen. And in this especially is disclosed to us his act, unfathomable and as merciful as it is just, of distinguishing people equally lost. This is the well-known decision of election and reprobation revealed in God's word. The decision, the wicked, impure, and unstable distort to their own ruin, but it provides holy and godly souls with comfort beyond words. And then it goes on, uh, Article 7 on election, Article 8 on a single decision of election, Article 9, election not based on foreseen faith. 
Article 9 reads, The same election took place not on the basis of foreseen faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, or of any other good quality and disposition as though it were based on a prerequisite cause or condition in the person to be chosen, but rather for the purpose of faith, of the obedience of faith, of holiness, and so on. Accordingly, election is the source of each of the benefits of salvation. Faith, holiness, and the other saving gifts, and at last eternal life itself, flow forth from election as its fruits and effects. As the apostle says, he chose us not because we were, but so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Ephesians 1, 4. And so on, Articles 10, Articles 11, Articles 15, Article 18, on and on, talk about election. Article 18 is the proper attitude toward election and reprobation. It says, this is relevant to us, it says, To those who complain about this grace of an undeserved election and about the severity of a just reprobation, we reply with the words of the apostle, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Romans 9.20 And with the words of our Savior, have I no right to do what I want with my own? Matthew twenty fifteen. We, however, with reverent adoration of the secret things, cry out with the apostle, quote, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and his ways beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. And such is the biblical and biblical theological case for unconditional election. But what comes next? What nesting doll is inside? We've already saw that we're in the condition of being totally depraved. We cannot merit our own salvation. And so to overcome that, to redeem some to his glory, God chooses from before the foundations of the world to elect some to salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. Right? But election doesn't accomplish it. We're still dead in our sins. We still can't, God can't just choose us. We are still sinful people. We are still objects of wrath. We are still worthy of just condemnation. So how can God make sure that those that he has chosen, those that he has elected, will actually be redeemed, will be saved? Right. That's when we're going to get into the atonement. So next time we will be looking at the atonement. We're going to do a little bit of an excursus looking at just what is the atonement? What does it mean? What happened? Is it accomplished or is it just offered? Right? What, what are some of the terms that have to do with the atonement? What does the Bible say the atonement is? What does the Bible say that Christ accomplished on the cross? So we'll be, we'll be kind of backing our way into the doctrine of limited atonement, the next one. Uh, so next time, join us as we look at the atonement here on the Freed Thinker podcast. Thank you again for joining us. I know it's been uh, uh, one that we looked at a lot of Bible verses, which we don't normally do that much on this show. But thank you for joining us on this episode. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, condemnations, or imprecations, feel free to email the show at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com. Or you could find us on Facebook at the Freed Thinker Podcast group page. Listen in next time again as we explore the nature of the atonement of Jesus Christ and whether he accomplished redemption or just offered a potential one. Thank you again for joining us and God bless.